When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At Progressive, we know there's nothing like the feeling of riding a motorcycle with your crew on the open road. It's a primal, wild freedom. A feeling that would be impossible to recreate on the radio. Until now. Hit it, sound effects guy. <laughs> Hmm, no. You know, we really lost a stride at the end there. Get 24-7 roadside assistance with Progressive, America's number one motorcycle insurer. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Roadside assistance subject to policy terms and limits and may require comprehensive coverage. The Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits. Perfect for seeing Taylor Swift The Eras Tour. Presented by Capital One. Ooh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and ten times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Hello, I'm Denny Somak, and this is The Rock Podcast. Now, I'm a producer, rock historian, and best-selling author. And over the years, I've collected thousands of interviews and I try and bring you the greatest stories as told by the artists themselves. On this episode, I dug out something that I think you'll enjoy. It's a rare, candid conversation with Pink Floyd's Nick Mason. Now, Nick is a founding member of the band and the only member that has appeared on every Pink Floyd album. David Gilmour, Rick Wright, and of course, Roger Waters have been absent on certain Pink Floyd albums. What's great about what you're going to hear is that Nick gives a history of the band, talks about their initial leader and chief songwriter, Sid Barrett, how David Gilmour joined the band, and why they didn't play Live Aid, meeting the Beatles at Abbey Road Studios while recording their first album, and the Beatles were recording Sgt. Pepper. All the stuff that is a fan you want to hear. Now, you may know that Nick has been touring with a band named Saucer Full of Secrets, which plays only early Pink Floyd material. He says he's happy to be playing Pink Floyd music fans may have never had the chance to experience live. The group was formed in 2018 by Mason, Spandau Ballet guitarist Gary Kemp, former Pink Floyd touring bassist Guy Pratt, guitarist Lee Harris, and keyboardist Dom Beckin. They planned from the very beginning to play only songs Pink Floyd recorded before Dark Side of the Moon turned them into superstars. That material includes Sid Barrett tunes like Astronomy Domain and Arnold Lane, songs from David Gilmour's earliest days in the band like Childhood End and Fearless, 
and even the occasional classic like One of These Days and See Emily Play. In this interview, you'll hear him talk about how seeing Ginger Baker in Cream gave him inspiration for his career, who his favorite drummers are. Great stuff. So this is from the summer of 1985 when he had just released his solo album, Profiles, and shortly before Pink Floyd reformed without Roger Waters and released A Momentary Lapse of Reason in September 1987. So here it is. This is Nick Mason. Street Poly, studying architecture. And during our first year there, someone... I think in the class, had written some songs and wanted a band to play the songs. And so he asked around the place and uh, we eventually admitted that we had played various instruments in the past. And we got together and started messing about. And um, we just became a sort of small college band. Of, uh, in fact, I can remember we eventually played the songs to a well-known music publisher who said the songs showed some promise and the band didn't. So <laughs> that was that. But um, sometime after that, um, Sid Barrett came down from Cambridge, who had been a friend of Roger's. And um, we, were, in fact, we then were all living in a flat together, an apartment. And uh, one of our college lecturers moved from teaching us to, to an art school where they started up a light and sound workshop and we started supplying music for that. So suddenly we got involved with the whole multimedia concept. And that's when things started to happen. We suddenly became rather fashionable. We were certainly rotten musicians and played dreadfully and everything else, but there was a sort of, uh, you know, aura to it all. And things really sort of went on from there we were generally rather behind with our abilities, you know, to the state of uh, where we were getting professionally, but eventually it got to the point where we ju there just was more and more work, and eventually we actually made a record and had a modest hit, mm -hmm. which put us into the, um, the sort of touring league where we could start touring the country and turn professional. Uh, again, it's sort of reasonably well known. It was an absolute disaster. I mean, we were really loved in London and that was sort of great and fashionable, but the style of our playing made us totally unsuited to working outside London, where we were looked upon as being the sort of biggest freaks and the most bizarre and I, we had everything thrown at us. You know, We were absolutely unacceptable. We were the unacceptable sound of music. Uh, some, of the, some of the greatest bands of all time um, started out being creatively ahead of where they were in their ability to execute mm. what they were thinking of. And I think that's what, what you might be saying there. You had better ideas than you had the ability to get them across right away. That's right, yeah. But somehow we seemed to... I think what's curious, looking back on it, is how much confidence we had. Because if one was treated like that now, you'd think, oh, this is horrible, you know, let's retire immediately. How did the Times, 64 through 69, for instance... Um, uh, I'm never, I'm, I'm never cease to be amazed at how sociology contributes mm. to rock and roll and vice versa. And I wonder if you could comment on the times, uh, you know, refer to it as acid rock and all that, the, the kids and the mental state of kids at the time. How did that contribute to the development of Pink Floyd? Well, obviously, I, I, it was very important because that's what was the launching pad that we wouldn't have, um, they made an audience that um, considered what we were doing acceptable. Um, I mean, I tend to say when asked about the 60s that I never saw the 60s because I was always in the back of a transit van rushing up and down the motorway. But, uh, I, 
There, w- there was certainly it was a uh, an era where there was a certain spirit and there were a lot of new ideas around. It was almost, uh, I think it happens now and again. It was like the previous occasion that that had happened was the sort of the first teenagers, the post-war teenagers, where suddenly people had money and could afford a sort of lifestyle of their own, whereas previously everything happened when you got older. Right. Um, and the sixties were another push forward to the to almost a sort of uh, perhaps a sort of slightly. I don't know. There was a sort of greater interest in ideas and concepts, and I think people were wrong in thinking that they could change the world that easily. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there was then a great disappointment afterwards. Um, but there was certainly a very special spirit that came up at that time. Do you have any influence of that time period who kind of, who may have uh, who may have affected you? Now I read that we weren't that in tune with things coming from America. Oh no! I mean, for me, the great influence was the sort of early British. Um, I was going to say, uh, not really. Not psychedelic bands. There's, for me, the thing that switched me from thinking I'd quite like to play professionally to I must do this was seeing Ginger Baker and the very first gigs from Cream. I mean, it absolutely changed my life. And the Yardbirds with um, Jeff Beck. I can remember them playing at our college and just thinking, that's where I want to be. I mean, as soon as I saw it. I think he's a lovely player. I mean, really terrific. And he's ma- I've enjoyed virtually all his records. Uh, returning to Sid Barrett, then he came in and kind of gave the creative umph to the band originally, and was the songwriter at the absolutely, outset. yeah, wrote and, uh, virtually everything. If I've seen one word about Sid constantly, it's erratic. That's absolutely true. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, at the beginning, he was not erratic at all. He was a very talented writer and good musician, nice guy to work with, and then he just went off the rails. And I believe he used unreliable in a former interview. <laughs> Well, that's um, probably good. Good <laughs> word. I'll stick with it. And so then there was there was quite a change in the band. I think the band seemed to find itself when Sid left because suddenly you turned around and you guys. Well, I don't think it found itself. I mean, I think it, um, bands sometimes do have a sort of life of their own, and one person leaves and it changes direction. I, I think we had a fairly clear. I think we'd have been perhaps. Uh, in a way, um, would have probably still found the same sort of direction, but with a greater top 40 to style of emphasis to it, which it had stayed. It's a little almost like Genesis with Peter Gabriel leaving. Suddenly, there's someone else who picks up and carries on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a bit what happened with us. Uh, it obviously, it switched the way the band worked and the emphasis of the music and so on. But um, in a way, I think things were established with Sid that were then sort of adjusted rather than Sid leaving and us, you know, I'm only picking up on that, uh, on the idea of us finding ourselves because it, it feels more like a development or a change rather than a sudden mm-hmm. stabilisation. Okay. So Dave, Dave was brought in to originally augment Sid's thing. That's right. We thought maybe we could operate a system where perhaps Dave came out on the road and Sid still wrote for the band, mm-hmm. but it became unworkable. I mean, I think in those sort of situations, the politics very quickly accelerate to the point where everyone can't bear it. How does the business of music get in the way of the love of music? Um, Well, I think now, being extremely old, that uh, it's, you know, if one was sort of talking about how to to, um, deal with the business, Mm -hmm. with the business of business, the answer is it shouldn't at all, that the two are 
the two are linked, and the greater interest you take in your business, uh, the the better it is for you, because the, you can't just sort of pretend that it doesn't exist. It's very important to understand how it works and what your record company need and how to approach selling your record. You shouldn't... I mean, I would never suggest that it influences the music. The music should always be simply done... I mean, it's the only way most people know how to work, is to do the best work you can and then work out <laughs> how the hell you sell it. But... Um, it's interesting, really, how one allows oneself to fall into a sort of state of feeling that, I don't know, your manager or your agent or your record company or your enemy and that they're working against you, and generally they're not. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are occasions where perhaps they are, but um, generally the more you understand about what's going on, probably in the long run the happier you'll be. I mean, the most popular thing that's happened to so many people, including ourselves, is the business of pretending that the business doesn't exist and passing all sorts of things on to other people who then make a mess of it. Yeah, sounds like the Apple story. In a Absolutely, a good example. Yeah. Did you uh, did you ever feel like a pioneer? Like I, I think people who are leaders um, don't actually know when they're when they're doing it, but it takes perspective and time to uh, to realize that you were doing things that no one else had done. I referred to you know, quad sound in studios, and once again, the visual aspects of your shows. Yeah, I, I mean, one never think. I still now wouldn't say we were leaders because I think a lot of the tracks that we took were um, unique and were best not followed by other people. I mean, um, quadraphonic sound, the way we used it probably was a. I'm tempted to say roughly right. In a way, uh, we used it for live shows. And um, that was about it. it. Quadraphonic sound came and went, uh, really, to my understanding. It never really caught on as a recording system. And it certainly, it, I think, is a, a very, quite rightly, it was not ideally suited to sort of home use because it's bad enough with stereo. I actually like to wander around when I'm listening to records, not sit in one place, glued and quad made. The positioning became absolutely critical. You know, there'd be these people sort of set in the middle of a room and the speakers arranged carefully around them. Um, so, I mean, that's a sort of example of something where one isn't really a leader, it's just something one comes up with and uses mm -hmm. that uh, is there before anyone else, and then, in fact, everyone else decides to <laughs> not to continue it. Do you feel that um, some of the diversions you threw um, at the audiences may have put the band more in a background state than, than just, like, going oh. to see a band? Mm. Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, we became... Very second, the show became a, a sort of more grandiose theatrical event, and the individuals became relatively unimportant. Um, this wasn't specific, you know, it wasn't that we particularly didn't want to become megastars in our own right. I mean, I think we most people go into rock and roll initially because they do, but it just seemed the right way of putting the music across and doing things. And mm -hmm. um, developed from that and in fact looking back on it again it was actually a very pleasant way of going because it meant that uh, sort of our life off stage was so much easier uh, and then Roger's uh, concept of the wall took that to probably the ultimate by um, by I, I understand that it all came out of a show in Olympic Stadium in Montreal where it was the fans were not what you would call receptive to what you wanted to play and Roger originally came up with the concept of there is a divisor between fan and performer. That's absolutely right. I mean, it was to do with the fact that the audience... It wasn't that they... 
they didn't seem to have any they, they were thrilled to be there and sort of enjoying the show but not listening to it and I think we suddenly realised that there was this extraordinary sort of wall between us with one half thinking, you know, the band thinking they were doing one thing and the audience thinking it was something else and uh, so the wall was initiated with that, yeah and it, it could have actually worked in reverse, and couldn't it? I mean, there that could have served as a bond. I think in the in the three times you did it, three times, right? The mm. wall, and in the three times that you've done it, I'm wondering if the fans felt more united by the fact that they couldn't see you. Oh, I think I think it made a point, and the wall was put together in such a way that it wasn't sort of completely. Mm. Uh, it was about. I mean, without sort of trying to explain the whole show, it was. Um, it was a sort of fairly complicated system, so that there wasn't a wall all the time. In fact, of course, at the end of the show, the wall comes down, which right. is a very important point to make. Right. And in a way, the wall shows worked far better in terms of audience understanding than anything we'd done before. You know, there was a total sort of interest and understanding, and they didn't expect us to come on and play old hits or anything like that. It was much sort of... it worked. <laughs> And then uh, did the filmic extension work, in your opinion? I think so. I mean, I think opinions are divided on it, but I actually thought Alan Parker did a, a great job on it, and I thought Bob Geldof also was marvellous. Really? Mm. That's yeah. good. Well, speaking of Bob, uh, any comments on his uh, his latest endeavour <laughs> and, and where you at all approached for Live Aid? Uh, no, we weren't, but uh, Dave sort of represented us, which I thought was a nice thing, with um, Brian Ferry. That's great. Uh, I, I mean, it's a wonderful, great thing to have done, and a great credit to the music business that uh, it it could really do something that governments seem to have been unable to do. I had heard last night on MTV um, there was some allusion to the fact that there may be a, a Pink Floyd some type of reunion or something. Well, there's no specific plan. All I've been saying really is that David and myself are now much more enthusiastic than we've been in the past to perhaps try and get back doing a band album. Roger is not enthusiastic, in fact um, deeply unenthusiastic at the moment, but I think things can change and certainly Dave and I might sort of push a bit harder to do something. Yeah, the band was never really split officially. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I don't see any reason, as far as I'm concerned, I have absolutely no wish to to (laughs) announce its demise. Reports of our death are exaggerated. (laughs) I'd like to ask you... um, how a drummer uh, is a driver, and how they and how the two things relate, and, do you, and what are the similarities you see? Uh, well, to do both of them, you have to be a complete lunatic. So <laughs> one's ideally trained. Um, uh, they they complement each other, I suppose, is the answer. They have certain uh, similarities. I mean, there's thrills, there's certain excitements, and uh, sense of satisfaction afterwards, and so on, mm-hmm. uh, and a certain amount of pushing yourself to do something I think uh, one of the interesting things is that motor racing is although it is a team sport to some extent that you need a group of people to help prepare the car and run it and so on and any um, any success is absolutely dependent upon the car running well apart from whatever you do as a driver Um, but unlike a band after that you are on your own and it's something that's entirely personal it's a great um, asset 
to people who work in a band to go on stage and know that they're going on with a group of people who they trust and know to be good and it takes a lot of responsibility off you, right. you know, it's, it's a very much a shared thing so motor racing is an exercise where suddenly you are totally dependent upon your own abilities and there's no one there to help you mm -hmm. so I think that's one reason why it complements it yeah it seems to me that um, keeping the, the rhythm and the, and, and the tempo of a band together is very much the same thing as navigating a track yeah so I think I mean, if one wants to get a bit sort of um, precious about it, I think you can actually say, well, it's almost like playing a piece of music going around a track, and it's just that you can't go and practice, go back and practice bar by bar. You've got to play through the whole piece again and again and again, and it's as difficult to get right. And I, I mean, I always maintain that uh, motor racing is closer to golf as a sport than a lot of people would ever imagine, because although people think of motor racing as sort of smoke and fumes and blood and thunder, uh, it, there's a lot of precision in it and to drive a car properly round a track quickly is about absolute precision and making your turns getting them exactly right the, it's not a matter of, sort of hurling the car madly round the place it's about get it, getting the car turning in exactly the right point at the right speed because as soon as you get it wrong you start not necessarily spinning off and having accidents you just get slower mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about how uh your fascination with motor racing began? Uh, well, really through my father, who made motor racing films and used to race himself. And uh, I was taken to watch motor racing from when I was six or seven years old. And so I've always been interested in it. So you went to the track to see your dad work on That's film. right. Yeah. I guess that could be uh, how your interest in film got, got started as well. Sure, then. yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty fairly <laughs> obvious, I'd say. Oh, let me see. Pink Floyd has done uh, has been involved in. Uh, we talked about the Wall, but there was also the Pompeii film as well. Yep, um, it's a long time ago. That was combination studio interview documentary yep. and things like that. Uh, any 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 remembrances or anything that you thought would happen as you were making it that did or did not happen? Now that you look back on it, almost eleven, twelve years later. Um, I think when we made uh, Pompeii, it was. Uh, very much one of those, we hardly, we didn't take much interest in the making of it. I mean, we took a bit, but looking back on it, I mean, we were just uh, more or less directed. Um, whereas obviously if one went back to it now, it would take a much greater interest in it. Mm -hmm. I think it's surprising really how well it works, he said modestly. Um, by which I mean, uh, looking at, certainly up until recently when concert videos and so on have become much more sophisticated. I think the thing that um, Adrian Marbin, who made the film, got right was to film it in the open air because what could have been a sort of just ploughing through the piece without an audience again and again actually took on a character because of the wind and the dust and the night and everything else. So we actually played as with some feeling, mm -hmm. which I think was very important. I think, in fact, that there's some uh, studio stuff, I think it's Cav with that axe. Uh, that we play in it that's really very dull compared to um, whatever the source full of secrets I think which is played as I say with much more feeling to it did you see anything uh, film wise before you went into that that either like did throw up like I don't want to do it like that or I'd like to do it like that referring to say things like the like the Beatles romp, obviously you wouldn't want to do. No, I don't think we'd ever seen ourselves in that sort of light. Right. And the the way the film was much more a sort of documentary mm -hmm. idea. How do you think it stands up? Uh, it was quite well, really. I mean, I still 
absolutely can, can't bear to watch it. I'm <laughs> deeply ashamed, but uh, that doesn't mean that it's not okay, really. Um, I have a quote here that says, I like to be part of group activities and I don't demand to be in control. Um, that came from you, I mm -hmm. think. Uh, yeah, that sounds like modest old me. Yeah, it's a very unselfish <laughs> posture uh, and not one that uh, everyone gets into. Uh, do you think that, that has helped your longevity and your perspective? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I suppose it's always helpful to have... Uh, it's certainly a sort of easier base to work from than thinking one always has to be in control. <laughs> I mean, it is the thing, uh, I think, with working with other people, of trying to sort out systems whereby people do what they're good at and everyone understands who's good at what and lets them get on with it. I think it's a very difficult thing to do. I mean, I think it's difficult in all walks of life. Uh, and one doesn't get it right all the time. I'm sure I still think I'm really good at things that actually I'm not very good at. A bit on the dark side of the moon. I had heard you say in another interview that you, even though it was received ten times better than everything that preceded it, you didn't think it was ten times better than everything that preceded it. But, That's right. But still today, it is an absolute audio classic. It's an event mm. on record. And um, I was wondering... Your comments or, or your, your your thoughts on it? Well, I think I'm probably a bit stunned, really. You know, I don't. You know, it's not as though I can sit here saying, "Yeah, well, it was such a good idea." It's quite obvious that uh, quite obvious why it's there. I, th I think it is a bit of a phenomenon that um, people are fascinated as to why it's been there that long, and so perhaps go and buy it almost out of interest. Certainly, some people have bought second copies and third copies and so on. Um, I mean, it's a wonderful thing to happen, but I don't truly understand why, because I, th I think the idea still stands up very well. There's some songs on it that still more or less stand up. I mean, I'm inevitably deeply ashamed of the drumming on it and listen to it and think, oh, God, I could do it so much better now and I'd do it differently. But, um, no, it's one of those sort of very, very curious things. Could you explain about the, uh, the hypnotic aspect of the cover? In a word, no. Um, the cover was uh, executed by some friends of ours called Hypnosis, who did v uh, virtually all our covers after the first one through for a sort of 12-year period, something like that. Um, and we simply asked them to come up with a cover idea for us, and they came up with various ideas and that was one of them and we all immediately fell in love with it it just seemed it was just such a beautiful graphic image I mean I think record covers uh, sometimes have to do some explaining of a record and sometimes they can simply be an attractive image you know that just says look at me <laughs> please buy me um, and that in a way just came, w did both it, there was something there which I couldn't really explain I mean it's a sort of abstract it's a there's a sort of it's whatever you want to make of it but it works it's, it does relate to the record but it's also just a very straightforward clean attractive image how much uh, imagination do you like or how much imaginative interpretation do you like to leave up to a listener oh as much as possible I mean I think it's uh, people do constantly try and get us to explain things and I think that's such a pity I mean I do feel that it's wrong to think of, of the music as being difficult or avant-garde or you know hard in any way it's it's not difficult music at all it's just it's fairly romantic really if anything and it's simply um i mean I, one of the things i was saying was it's a little like looking at a painting i mean 
you don't need the artist to write out an essay on what you're really seeing and who that was in the cornfield and you know all the rest of it and what the name of the driver of the haywain is or something like that you just look at it and the artist saw something very specific there which he's done but what you get from the painting is something else there's you know some other feeling from it and it's it's that i mean there's an idea and people should then take that and respond to it yeah i couldn't agree more there are some songs that i hear that i absolutely love that i will and i do not want to see a video as because i Mm. cherish my own mental picture of what it was and that's personal and Mm. you know as good as it as good as somebody else's interpretations and execution could be it still isn't mine and uh, and that's that's what i like most about floyd is because you can wrap up on it like a warm semi-depressed blanket sometimes (laughs) (laughs) and and let yourself uh, and let yourself make your own conclusions how do you feel if, if Roger is somewhat voicing his depression at various stages of, uh, of your recording career, um, but you don't necessarily feel that bad about things? No, I certainly don't, but I've always um, been sympathetic to Roger's lyrics. I mean, I've never felt uh, that, um, like saying, well, this is Roger's feelings and not mine and so on, because I think that um, the genuine looks at sensations that I've certainly felt even if I'm not feeling them now and that there's a lot of room in, in music to to make some other statements apart from gotta 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 get your babe mm-hmm. which you know is a very important statement and <laughs> but it doesn't need to be repeated all the time and it's quite nice to have a you know look at uh, sort of the downside of life sometimes and um uh, certainly some of the things in Roger's lyrics relate to the people who listen to records. Uh, I think it's also unfair to say that, you know, Roger's been accused of whinging about life when he's obviously doing so well. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's perfectly reasonable to make statements and say things. And certainly music should be used for it more. I mean, I was quite interested in the uh, Paul Hardcastle single, 19, because it felt like uh, a sort of very short, easy-to-digest little message about... Something about a piece of real life. Yeah. Um, rather like a little sort of collage. Yeah, I often think of uh, of Townsend and what Roger Daltrey had to interpret through Pete's I mean, Pete's pensive thinking, mm-hmm. and then he gives this self exploration to Daltrey to sing. I always thought it was an amazing. And it, wo- I think, it works very nicely. I think it's a sort of again, it's almost that thing of saying, well, look, here's a um, here's an idea. Now let's translate it through. Roger Daltrey rather than directly through Pete mm-hmm. and you get another um, you get another angle on it but it's the same you know it's the same message on the Beatles oh uh, I mean those are probably the, all by, uh, without doubt the most important band that's ever been uh, who knows if anyone would ever I can't believe that anyone will, will become more important than them because partly because rock and roll has changed in its sort of social stature now that the Beatles were news big news for all, most of their existence everything they did and said was important and the media now has almost moved on to the point where you know rock music is okay but it's not that important mm-hmm. really it's so much part of everyday life now it's it's not such a phenomena anymore so that's one angle, one aspect of it. Did, uh, did the news of them land on your doorstep as you were uh, beginning in your music career? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was saying to um, someone else had asked about Beatles, uh, and I was saying that um, I very clearly remember when we were recording our first album at Abbey Road, the Beatles were recording Sgt. Pepper Next Door, and we were ushered in to meet the great ones at one point, and, you know, that was pretty important stuff. And they were doing Pepper at the time? Yeah, they were doing, uh, yeah, exactly. Ooh.
Drummers past and present that you uh, admire? Um, lots of jazz drummers, uh, sort of what, almost fusion drummers. Billy Cobham, in particular, um, doesn't mean I. He has a, he has virtually I was, he has no influence on me whatsoever because I can't play like that. Mm -hmm. But like to listen to him. Ginger Baker, big influence, um, just in terms of you know being up there, even not necessarily even again the playing of. Um, I mean, there's just so many drummers. I think you listen to all the time, looking for things that you'd like to play or that you think are clever and interesting. Obviously, those in the time when one's starting off, one's perhaps a bit more geared to the idea of listening to other people. I'm, I mean, there were four or five drummers when I was starting who were an influence on me, partly because I got to know them a little bit and was astonished at how helpful they were. I was thinking particularly of Mitch Mitchell mm -hmm. when he was playing with the Hendrix Experience. Um, Blinky Davidson, who was with the Nice. Mm -hmm. um, and Robert Wyatt, who, uh, all of whom I thought were great drummers. And all were extremely sort of friendly and, you know, there was a feeling that you could actually watch them and think about how they did it and, mm -hmm. that, uh, and go away and think again about what they were doing. And What's the best thing a drummer can bring to any band? can bring to, to a ba any band What's, what is his role and how can he maximise the same as virtually anyone else in a band which is a sense of, of the band and um, an ability to see how to fit into the band rather than a desperate wish to become the great solo star of it I mean I have a particular dislike which are the sort of 20 minute drum solos because I think they serve little purpose and they're more a gymnastic exercise generally than, than musical but it's really to uh, to have a sympathy particularly with the bass player be able to set patterns that work well mm -hmm. for the for the soloists. Don't do as um, don't do as I do. Do as I say, because I certainly <laughs> at times have been accused, particularly by the rest of the band, of playing far too much and <laughs> getting far too excited. But that's just uh, that's life. That's our conversation with Nick Mason on this edition of the Rock Podcast. His Saucer Full of Secrets band released a live album and video live at the Roundhouse. If you'd like information on that, as well as tour dates, go to Nick's website, thesaucerfullofsecrets.com. Now, I hope you enjoyed hearing this interview from my archives. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. And you can find us at the website, therockpodcast.com, and on Facebook. You can also send your comments, and let me know what you think. Contact me at hello at therockpodcast.com. That's it for now. So long. This week on RVER, sponsored by Progressive Insurance. I'm sorry, I can't operate on that vehicle. But doctor, you took an oath. That RV, it's my son's RV. Oh, doctor, isn't there anything you I'm can do? I'm not a miracle worker, Sheila. I'm an RV surgeon, trained to save the lives of large injured recreational vehicles, which is definitely a real profession. When your RV really needs saving, Progressive has you covered. See if you could save with a leader in RV insurance. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates covered subject to policy terms. The Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits. Perfect for seeing Taylor Swift The Eras Tour. Presented by Capital One. Oh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and 10 times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. 
The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 